Jesus once said that the last will be first. Taking those words out of context a bit, what I would like to do in the sermon this morning is take the last words of Jesus in today's gospel reading and make those words first and foremost. It has been a long time since I have seen this placard. But when I was growing up, I saw it a lot. I remember the first time that I saw it on television, it was in a World Series game being played in Los Angeles. I was young. I remember seeing it. got so excited. And I told my mom, I said, look, John 3.16 is at the World Series. (laughs) She had taught me to memorize it. And then later I saw it at a college football game in the end zone behind the goalposts. And then I saw it spray painted on the water tank in my hometown. Right next to T.R. Miller football, there was John 3.16. I've seen it spray painted on interstate overpasses and wondered how do people do that upside down. I've seen it on religious pamphlets, and I've seen it on bumper stickers as well. Now, let me say something about bumper stickers. And the, the problem I have, and this is my problem, is that when I see a bumper sticker and it has a, a serious message on it, I end up judging and pigeonholing and labeling the person that put it on there. And that I don't like to do that because I want to be open. And I, I try to say to myself, there's more to them than just their bumper sticker. So if we had a conversation, I would try to be open. And I really don't want people doing that to me if I put on a bumper sticker on my car. So I made a pledge that I would never put a bumper sticker on, on a truck, which I don't drive, except for one, and that's Matt's ice cream. It's in Gulf Shores. I recommend it to you. That bumper sticker's on my truck. But if I were to put a bumper sticker, a religious bumper sticker on my truck, it would be John 3.16 because it is so clear and succinct. It's easy to memorize. And if you haven't memorized it, you might want to give yourself that little spiritual practice this week. See if you can memorize it and let it sink into your heart. It is a foundational summary of the Christian faith and of the gospel. You know, the gospel is good news. And John 3.16 is a foundational statement of that, so much so that as I was working on the sermon this week, I I thought we should sing how firm a foundation. And I called Mother Susan. The bulletin had already been printed because Jessica was going on vacation. And I asked, could we sing that? And she was willing to make that adjustment. Thus, we sang, how firm a foundation. And John 3.16 is such a firm foundation for the Christian faith. And in that hymn, the question is asked, what more can he, God, can God, Father, Mother, say to you than God has already said? John 16 says it all, very much so which means that I'm sort of perplexed, well, what could I add to it? And it makes me think of a young monk who was assigned by the abbot in the monastery to preach on John 3.16 to the, to the fellow monks. 
And so he got up and he said, now this is like talking about preaching to the choir. This is really preaching to the choir. So he says, listen, how many of you know what I'm going to say before I even say it? And all the monks shook their head like this. He said, if you already know, there's no need me to tell you. And he sat down. The abbot said, no, no, that's not enough. You need to do a little more. So he got up. He said, well, how many of you know what I'm going to say before I even say it? They were ready for him, and they went like this. He said, if you don't know by now, there's no need for me to tell you. And he sat down. The abbot said, one more time, let's try this. How many of you know what I'm going to say before I even say it? Half of the monks went like this. The other half went like that. He said, would those of you going like this turn to those going like this? And tell them what I was going to say. So let me ask you. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever trusts in that love shall have eternal life. So how many of you know, raise your hand if you will, know what I'm going to say even before I say it? Okay, with those of you who raised your hand, please turn to those who didn't. I'm just kidding. I'm teasing you a little bit the way my grandmother Craver teased me. She, was, she called herself a hard-shell Southern Baptist. I don't know what that means, hard-shell. I know what Southern Baptist means. I was raised Southern Baptist. But I don't know what hard-shell meant to her. But anyway, that's what she said. And I said to her one day, Mother Craver, I was about nine, was Jesus a Baptist? She said, Sonny boy, that's what she called me, Sonny boy. They didn't have denominations back then, but if they had them, you can bet your bottom dollar he would have been. <laughs> Listen, Jesus was not a Baptist, but he was not an Episcopalian either. In fact, I think it's possible to conclude from John 3.16 and from Jesus' life and teaching and death and resurrection, I think it's possible to conclude that Jesus was the end of religion. The end of religion. Now, I must be quick to explain this statement, lest I be run out of town and brought to the edge of the cliff the way Jesus was. What do I mean when I say Jesus was the end of religion? If by religion we mean what we must do to get to God, what we must do to get to heaven, what we must do to get to God, then I think Jesus was the end of that religion. You see, when it comes to religion, Jesus turns it all upside down. My assumption, and this is an assumption based on my own journey of faith, as well as listening to many other people, is that most of the time, most people, when they start thinking about religion, and religious practices, they start with an emphasis on themselves, on if they're good enough, what they must do to get to God. I don't know about you, but I strongly identify with the jailer in Philippi. Remember the story where Paul and Silas were set free from prison by the earthquake, and the jailer comes out and says, what must I do to be saved? The personal act that he must do, he must perform. And then there was the rich young ruler that came to Jesus, and we're told that his question was, what good thing must I do in order 
so that I may obtain eternal life. Do you hear the emphasis that we tend to put in our religious practices on whether we can measure up and be good enough? I learned it early on. You know, listen, we internalize what we sing. That's why our hymnody, the text, and what we sing is so important. And I remember going to vacation Bible school and singing, Jesus loves me. That part was great. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But then this part came. Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should. I wondered sometimes if my hyperactivity, you know, caused them to really stress that as they were leading me in Bible school. You, you know, when you're good, you get your heavenly reward. I, don't, I, hear, I hear there's a second verse to this. I never sang it. Jesus loves me when I'm bad, even though it makes him sad. How good do we have to be? Rabbi Kushner wrote a whole book on that. How good do we have to be? Are we moral enough? Are we spiritual enough? Do we believe enough? Do we pray enough? Do we read our Bible enough? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all about all of those things. I have been for a long time. I'm all about morality. I'm all about spirituality and reading the scripture and praying. But if we do those things in order to earn God's love, to prove our worthiness to God, Jesus says our emphasis is on the wrong syllable. Because Jesus, listen to him now when you read the gospel, puts his emphasis on God. For God so loved the world. God gave his son. God sent. God. God is the primary actor. God is, in the words of Francis Thompson, the hound of heaven. Baying relentlessly upon the tracks of our souls. Jesus did not come to tell us what to do to get to God. He reveals to us what God did, God does, and God continues to do to get to us. God is the lover. We're the beloved. God is the pursuer. We're the ones being pursued. And God is the wooer, if that's a word, wooing us into that love relationship with God. Let me tell you a story about love's longing, love's desire to be one with the beloved. This is a true story told by Jesuit priest Robert Kennedy, a good name, easy name to remember. He's a parish priest in New York. He leads retreats in Louisiana at Grand Coteau, and I went on a retreat where he told a story that happened to him beginning on the evening of July 17, 1996. That evening, shortly after the sun had set, but while it was still light, TWA Flight 800 had taken off from JFK Airport en route to Paris. Eleven minutes into the flight, the Boeing 747 exploded. 230 people were on board. 38 of those people were under the age of 21. 
Father Kennedy was called that night by the parents of one of the children who was a member of his parish. The next day, he went with the parents and stood on the beach looking at the debris of the plane floating in the Atlantic. They stood there for a while. Perhaps you can picture the scene in silence, accompanied by the sacred water of their tears. But then it happened. Father Kennedy describes what happened next as the single most powerful sacramental act. Sacrament is something outward and visible that is, indicates something inward and spiritual. He said it was the single most sacramental act that he had ever witnessed as a Jesuit priest. What happened was the mother of the child fell to the ground on her knees, cupped her hands, and she began to drink the salty water of the Atlantic. When we see in our mind's eye this woman on her knees drinking the bitter, salty ocean water, we see how thirsty she is to be one with her child even in death. Where does this love come from? The Bible only gives one definition of God. Apostle John in 1 John says, God is love. God is the source, the origin, the wellspring of that mother's love to be one with her child even in death. Which means, doesn't it, that when we see Jesus on the cross sucking vinegar from a sponge, John tells us in his gospel that he took of the drink, what do we see? We see God's thirst for us. From the cross, Jesus says, I thirst. Yes, in a physical sense. But remember that in the original Greek, to thirst meant to yearn for, long for, Seek after what one desires the most. On the cross, Jesus reveals to us the thirst that God has to be one with us in communion with his children, united with us, one with us, atonement at one, one with us in our gladness and in our sadness, in our ups and in our downs, in our goodness and in our badness, in our living and in our dying. You see, we have to, when we go into practicing religion and doing religious practices, we have to take care not to get our emphasis on the wrong syllable. We must be careful not to fall into the subtle temptation of making it primarily about ourselves. It is hard to do. I mean, my favorite subject is the kingdom of me. I love what Irma Bombeck said after talking about herself so much. She said, okay, that's enough about me. Now tell me what you think about me. Sometimes my prayer life feels like that. I tell God all about me, and then I ask God to tell me what he thinks about me. And he says, 
like Mr. Rogers. He says, I've already told you, it's you I love. Not your rightness, not your morality, not your spirit. It's you, the very you is the one I love. St. Paul came to this conclusion after years of being a Pharisee, of keeping meticulously the law. In Philippians, he says, as to the law and the keeping of the law, there was none better. I'm Pharisee among Pharisees. You want to talk about getting right with God in righteousness? Get behind me, Paul says. And then he says, I count all of that as scubala for the grace that I found in Christ. Paul went on to say, it's no longer about me. It's not myself that I proclaim. It's Christ and Christ's love and longing for union with me just as I am. It's hard for us to remember this and to practice this. Even preachers, ordained ministers get confused about it. This fundamental truth of John 3.16. I remember in 2001 when Jan and I went on our sabbatical. We went to San Francisco and we stayed a week in the mission district in San Francisco and one Sunday we got up and we we took a cab and we went to Grace Cathedral. We had the sacramental bread and wine. We heard a powerful sermon. Then we went down to the wharf and then as the sun was setting, we caught the public transportation system, the bus, back to our mission district. And I remember getting on the bus and that woman came onto the bus. She was staggering. Her clothes were tattered. Her speech was slurred. She reeked of alcohol, and she sat down right beside me. And then she said, I went to church today. I thought, oh, my. And the preacher, he want to know if there's a place in my heart for God. I didn't say anything. He said, hmm, what I want to know is there a place in God's heart for me? What a profound question. I'm willing to bet that every human being at one time or another asks that question. Is there a place in God's heart for me? Einstein asked it in a different way. He said, is the universe friendly? That lady's question is, I think, the question of every person that comes to a church. Every person who's seeking shelter, who's seeking a home, who wants to know, is there a place inside here that, that I belong? I think people stand outside the church and silently say, who am I? Who are they? What do I have to do to belong? Is there a place in God's heart for me? Mystery, mystery, what is your name, God? To that mystery of Godness, Jesus says, good news, you belong. God so loved the world, he gave, he sent, not to condemn, but to accept. And St. Paul says, and how can people know this if they haven't heard the good news? And blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news, and not just the preachers, the laity, we who can show other people, there's a place here, you belong. I have to confess on that day and that bus, I said nothing. I did nothing 
to reassure this woman. I had heard the gospel. I had received the sacrament. I must confess that if I had to do it over again, I think what I would do, at least this much, I would take a sheet of paper, I would write John 3.16 on it, and I would say, here, go, read this. Read it. And pray for the grace to trust. And I'd ask her to pray for me that I might trust more in this good news. This morning, we are so blessed. We are blessed to be the recipient of the good news, blessed to be nurtured by John 3.16. We're about to receive the sacramental reminder of this presence that loves us unconditionally. We are indeed blessed to be here. And we also have a community, St. Christopher's Church. As one person put it, I can hear that God loves me, but I have to have someone with skin on. I need someone with skin on to show me that God loves me. And we have that in this community. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive, meaning, of course, that we are blessed as we hear the gospel, but we're even more blessed when we share it with others. So we're asking our baptismal covenant, will you proclaim by word and deed this good news? And the answer is, I will with God's help. It's not so that we can be accepted. It's because it flows into us, and there's such joy in letting it flow from us. We grow in this awareness of God's love by sharing it with others. We grow by letting it flow. God above us, God beside us, God deep within us, your love be done. Amen.